I know that some of you were here last week, and you're like, well, that's the same video you showed us last week. But if you remember, they cut me off, and you didn't get to see my highlight reel there at the end. So I want to show that. I'm just kidding. Um, uh, this past week, I was reading through a couple of news feeds and scrolling through a couple of news feeds, and I ran across two articles that were dealing with religion and churches. And one of them uh, was about churches that are being forced to sell their property and churches that, uh, because of low attendance, because of kind of unsustainable budget issues, and uh, some of them, honestly, because they have massive buildings but few people, they can't sustain that property anymore. And so they are being forced to sell their properties and forced to close their churches. And, and so I was reading through that article, and I thought, man, this is, it's tough to digest. It's tough to, to see how God is working in these situations. And oddly enough, then I scrolled down just a little bit further, and there was another article about something going on in Kentucky. And many of you uh, may have heard about this, this nonstop worship service at a Kentucky college um, that is now spreading beyond the college in, in different places. Many of you may have heard of this revival. And, and so I began to kind of look at how one news article had just this terrible information about churches and, and could kind of leave you depressed and feeling like, man, just church doesn't have a place anymore. And then you read this other article, and you're like, man, God is really moving, and God is really doing something, and God is really active in this place in Kentucky. And, and so I began to feel sorry for the people who only heard about these churches that were failing, only heard about these churches who were being unsustained and having to put their property for sale. You see, if all we see is churches that are failing, we forget that God is working and God is moving. He's moving in places like Asbury College and uh, Wilmore, Kentucky, where they've had this revival service, this nonstop worship service going on for days. He's moving and working at Fruitland Bible College here in North Carolina, and they're honestly experiencing something similar to what's going on in Kentucky. It's just not uh, publicized as well. And, and then um, as last week, I stood here and I looked at a table at the end of our service, and that table was filled with envelopes and commitments that we as a church have made to lengthen the ropes. And I was reminded in that moment that God is good. And God is working here in Cornerstone and through Cornerstone. And we have a reason to celebrate this morning. And so many of you are, are kind of, we're going to look at this passage. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to First Chronicles. Uh, chapter 29, and uh, as we start looking at this passage, many of you will be like, well, that would have been a great sermon. You should have talked about that beforehand because it talks about giving, talks about preparing for, for the, the uh, preparing and getting ready to build the temple. But I want us to focus not just on the giving of what happens, but really what happens as a result of the response of the people. What happens after the people give? And so I've intentionally kind of saved this passage for today, after our Commitment Sunday. Now, I'll say that. If you haven't had a chance to, to participate in that, we'll, we'll give you an opportunity, and you are more than welcome to, um, to participate with that. But in, we, in this passage, we see this great reason to celebrate. We see the response of this giving, this goodness of God, and we celebrate His goodness. So if you've got your Bibles, it's going to be kind of a lengthy reading today. Uh, but First Chronicles chapter 29, we're going to start in verse 1. And we're going to read all the way verse, through verse 22 this morning, or through 21, sorry. All right? uh, but First Chronicles chapter 29 starts this way. It says, And then David, or King David, said to all the assembly, My son Solomon, God has chosen him alone, is young and inexperienced. The task is great, because the temple will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So to the best of my ability, I've made provisions for the house of of my God, gold for the gold article, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, and wood for the wood, as well as onyx stones for mounting and timony stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones, and a great quantity of marble. Moreover, because of my delight in the house of God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the house of my God, over and above all that I provided for the holy house. Ten, or excuse me, a hundred tons of gold, 250 tons of refined silver for laying the walls of the building, the gold for the gold works, and the silver for the silver, and all the works to be done by the craftsmen who now, or excuse me, now who will volunteer to consecrate himself to the Lord today. And then the leaders of the households and leaders of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. 
For the service of God's house, they gave 185 tons of gold, 10,000 gold coins, 375 tons of silver, 675 tons of bronze, and 4,000 tons of iron. Whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the Lord's house under the care of Jehel and the Joshite. Would then the people rejoiced because their leaders willingly gave or willingness to give, for they had given to the Lord with a whole heart. And King David also rejoiced greatly. And here's where I want you to focus in verse 10 and beyond. The Lord, or then David praised the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, May you be praised, Lord God of our Father Israel, from eternity to eternity. Yours, God. Our Lord is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty forever in the heavens and on earth belong to you. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom and you are exalted as head over all. Riches and honor come from you and you are the ruler of everything. Power and might are in your hand and it is in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we give you thanks. And we praise your glorious name. But who am I? And who are my people? That we should be able to give as generously as this. For everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are living before you as foreigners and temporary residents in your presence. As were our ancestors. Our days on earth are like shadows without hopes. Yahweh our God. All this wealth that we, that we provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand. Everything belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the hearts and you are pleasing or you are pleased with what is right. I have willingly given all these things with an upright heart, and now I have seen your people who are present here giving joyfully and willingly to you. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our ancestors, keep this desire forever in the thoughts of the hearts of your people and confirm their hearts towards you. May my son Solomon a whole heart, or give my son Solomon a whole heart to keep and to carry out your commands, your decrees, and your statutes, and build the temple for which I have made provision. Then David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord your God. So the assembly praised the Lord God of their ancestors. They bowed down, they paid homage to the Lord and the king. And the following day they received sacrifice, they offered sacrifices to the Lord and burnt offerings to the Lord. A thousand bulls, a thousand rams, and a thousand lambs, along with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all of Israel. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that you are working and that you are moving in colleges in Kentucky, in colleges in North Carolina, in a small little church called Cornerstone. God, I thank you that you are working in hearts of individuals, even in this very moment. To magnify you. To see your greatness and your goodness. And God, we come with a simple question. God, who are we? God, who are we? Not only to be saved by you, but to be used by you. God, who are we to bring anything of value to you? But God, only what you have given to us, Father. And so God, I pray in this time that we have together, that we work through this text, God. God, that we are just overwhelmed at your greatness. God, that we are overwhelmed by your mercy and your love for us. God, that we are overwhelmed that you would see us fit to be anything, much less to be your servants, Father. So, God, I pray that we rejoice in who you are, 
because of what you've done, because what you are allowing us to be part of, Father. So God, I pray that we lift you up. I pray that we exalt you because you are working in and through this place and in and through the hearts of individuals gathered here and watching online, Father. And so God, I praise you. And I pray that we continue to worship you with the words that we read and the words that we hear and the songs that we'll sing after, Father. God, I pray that we celebrate the greatness and the goodness of our God. Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Many of you have heard the name of a famous baseball player named Reggie Jackson. Um, he is a Hall of Famer, and his nickname is Mr. October. And some of you are too young to know him. Uh, some of us have read about him, but he has earned that name Mr. October uh, because he was a clutch hitter, uh, both for the Athletic A's, or the, yeah, excuse me, uh, the Oakland A's, and the Yankees. And so between 1969 and 1974, he helped Oakland get this win five consecutive American League West Division titles, three straight American League pendants, and three consecutive World Series titles. Right? So this guy is a valuable baseball player. But in the April of 1976, he was traded from the Oakland A's to the Baltimore Orioles. Basically, that they didn't want to sign a contract. They didn't want to pay him what he thought he was worth. And so several other players, along with himself, decided they wouldn't play for the, the A's anymore. And so he was traded uh, to the Baltimore Orioles. And the Orioles had a manager, a guy named Earl Weaver. And there was lots of questions of how Weaver and Jackson were going to get along. Weaver was a very structured manager. He, he expected a kind of very structure and discipline from his players. And Jackson was not that, right? Jackson was a very arrogant player. In fact, one of his teammates said, I would describe Jackson as arrogant, except the word arrogant is not arrogant enough to describe him. That's how he pictured him, right? And that's how he described him. And, and so there was all these questions of how Weaver and Jackson, how these two were going to work together, and, and just was this going to fit? Was this going to work at all? And you see, Weaver had this rule that you were not allowed to steal a base unless you were given the sign from the coach, Right? And Jackson didn't like that rule because Jackson thought he could do this. He, he just knew that he could read the pitchers, he could read the catchers, and if he thought he could do it, he was going to do it, right? And so he just felt like this rule wasn't really important to him. And he wanted to prove to the coach that this didn't matter to him, that he didn't have to wait on somebody to tell him what to do, that he was just going to do it. And so there was a day in the game that Reggie Jackson was on first base, and he read the, play, he read the pitcher, he read the coach, or the, the player, and he looked for the coach, and the sign didn't come. But he just knew he could make it. And so he took off, and he got a good start. And he easily beat the, the throw to second base, and as he got up from sliding into second base, he got up and he kind of brushed the dirt off of him like they all do, and then he looked straight at his coach, and he just smiled, brushing that dirt off himself. Just feeling like he had vindicated himself, feeling like he could prove to himself that he had made this right decision. And the coach just shook his head. And in utter disappointment, he just shook his head. And then finally, after Reggie kind of got back and he, Weaver pulled him to the side, and he says, Let me tell you what you just did. And Reggie's acting like, I got on second. I did my job. And he says, Yeah, let me tell you the problem with that. He says, The problem with you not listening to me in this moment was that our next hitter next to you is the best hitter we had. And you know what happened when you left first wide open and you took off running to second? You left first open, and they decided instead of pitching to him, they were going to walk him. And so then they walked this guy. Instead of letting him, making him being pitched to and possibly getting a home run, and both of you getting home, now I've got one on first and one on second. He says, and then guess what? The guy that comes after him, He's not very strong against this pitcher. So I had to put in a pinch hitter to come in and substitute in for this guy. Which means when we get in later in this game, I don't have the strength on the bench that I need to have to finish this game the way I need to. You need to understand that what you saw was a relationship between you and a pitcher. But what I see is this whole game. And the decision you made doesn't look like the decision that should have been made for this whole game you got to look beyond yourself, and you got to realize that you are part of a team, and if you're going to make decisions, those decisions better be what's best for this team. You see, Reggie Jackson only looked at himself. 
He only looked at this idea that he could make these decisions. He only looked at this idea that when he saw the pitcher and the catcher, he considered the impact, and he was going to make it just for himself. But what Weaver told him over and over again, listen, you are part of a team. We look at this whole game together as a team. And yes, you may got on second, but what you did is you hurt our chances of winning this game because you made decision. And what I really need you to do is see a bigger picture, see beyond your Self. You see, the beauty of our Lengthen the Rope campaigns is it requires us to do exactly what Coach Weaver was trying to get Jackson to do. It allows us and it requires us to see this bigger picture and really see beyond ourselves. It requires us to see a vision that is bigger than us and a vision that is beyond what we feel and see right now, a vision that will impact generations to come. And this is a lesson that many of us are having to learn, and a lesson that even the great King David had to learn. So let me give you a little bit of background about how we got to First Corinthians or First Chronicles, uh, verse or chapter twenty-nine. You see. Uh, we talked last week about this building of the tabernacle and how the people of Israel had gotten out of uh, Egypt and they had uh, moved through the desert and God gave Moses these instructions on how to build the tabernacle. We talked about the tabernacle was this movable church that they could pack this thing up and they could move place to place to place. All right? So for 400 years, this was their church. It was this massive tent that they would set up when they needed to and they'd fold down and then they'd move to a different place and they'd set the temple or the tabernacle back up, right? So for 400 years, this was their place of worship, right? And in those 400 years, the people had stopped becoming nomadic. They'd stopped moving around. They came into the promised land. They kind of established who they were. They were building permanent houses. They weren't living in tents anymore. And so even King David had this nice palace built for himself. This is the land God had promised. We have arrived. And so then David says, listen, something's not right about this because I live in this nice palace but God's uh, altar, his, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant, it's still resting in a tent. And so I really want to build this massive temple. I really want to kind of build this permanent structure for God's house. I really wanted this to be a permanent place for people to come and worship God. It's really not right that I live in this massive palace, and yet God's temple and His Ark is in this tent. And so through the prophet Nathan, God spoke to, to David, and he says, Listen, I know all of you have done I've seen all you've done, and I know your heart, and I know what your heart is for, but this is not your job. Your job is not to build this temple, right? And so what he's calling David to do is, listen, I want you to understand something. As great as your desire is to build this temple and to make this a place of worship, what your real job is is to look beyond yourself and to see what is coming next. And so he, God makes this promise to David, and, and, and this promise is that your son Solomon is going to be the one that builds the temple. And so in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, David is nearing the end of his life, and he wants to make sure that Solomon understands the responsibilities of, of building this temple. And so uh, he's, in chapter 29, he's really talking about Solomon. He's really kind of prepping Solomon and commissioning Solomon to build this uh, temple. And then the first verse of chapter 29, he makes sure the people understands this as well. And so the very first verse, he gathers all the people together and the nation together, and he tells them, My son Solomon, God has chosen him alone. He's young and inexperienced. The task is great because the temple is, too, is not for man, but for the Lord God. And so David makes it clear that he's looking beyond himself in two specific ways here. First, he's looking beyond himself because he's looking to a future generation. He's looking to the next generation. He sees his son, and when he looks at this next generation, he sees his son, and he notices his son is young and in experience. He doesn't have the leadership experience. He doesn't have the development. He doesn't have all the things that David has had. He doesn't have all these experience or all the rest of the leaders. And so the question becomes, why would you leave such a great responsibility to such a young and inexperienced leader? And the answer is simply this, because this is what God said. This is what God has done. This is what God has chosen for Solomon to do. And so David understands that while his job is not to build the temple, it is his job to prepare for the building of the temple. It is his job to, to set this next generation up for success. It's his job 
to do everything he can to collect all the items, to get everything set in place so this young, inexperienced leader can be successful. And he's looking beyond himself, and he's saying, hey, listen, I, I can't build this thing, but what I can do even in my latter stage of life is that I can make sure this next generation has everything it needs to do to continue to build and grow its relationship with God. And so I want you to pause for just a moment because there's a lesson for us here. You see, as much as we're responsible for our personal growth and our personal relationship with Christ, just like David was, we're equally responsible for making sure the next generation has all that it needs to be able to do what it's called to do as well. You see, our job is to make sure all the preparations that we can so this young and inexperienced generation, that they can do what God has called them to do. Right? And so I've got to be honest with you, this is not just a financial thing. I want you to see that this is not just a... I'm not, I'm not trying to campaign for more money or anything like this, but I'm just simply saying this isn't just financial. That we as a church, we as a people, we as Christians, we share this responsibility because the generation that comes after us is young and inexperienced. And I don't care which generation you assign yourself to, there's one that's younger than you that's less experienced than you. And so our job is not to do what God's called them to do. Our job is to prepare them and make all the preparations and set them up for success. And so what David is doing, he says, I'm doing everything I can to make sure this next generation has all that they need to do this. And so for, for David, it's financial. And for some of us, it's financial. But let's be honest, it's not just finances. It means that we share and we give our time and our energy. It means that we share and we pass on our wisdom. It might mean that you take a, a young person, either young in age or young in faith, and you kind of take them under your wing and you guide them and you mentor them in the right direction. Now, I've got to be honest for a moment that most of us sitting in this room right now, most of us watching online, the reason we're here is because somebody did this for us. It's because there was a generation that came before us who did this for us. And I'm going to be honest with you, we're sitting in a building that some of you were here when this building was built and some of us are not or were not. And we're here because the generation that came before us did this. They prepared this place and this space for us to be here. And they looked beyond themselves and they said, hey, there's a generation that's coming that's going to need a sanctuary. And there's a generation that's coming that's going to need a bigger sanctuary. And we're going to do everything we can to prepare that space for them. And they did it. And for some of them, it wasn't just the building. For some of it, there was a Sunday school teacher, a vacation Bible school teacher, or an Awana teacher, or maybe it was just a mentor who took you kind of personally under their arm, and they showed you, and they explained the gospel to you. And they invested in you, and they looked beyond themselves, and they said, there's this generation that's coming, and they're young and inexperienced, and my job is to get them to where they need to be. And it's not just finances. It is time and it's energy. And most of us sitting in this room, if we honestly thought hard enough, and most of us watching online, if we honestly thought hard enough, we could name right now the person who that was for us. Who was the person that invested in you? Who is the person who prepared and tilled the soul for God to speak into your heart for you to get to the point where you are right now? And here's the challenge for us. Who are you doing that for? You see, it's us now. There's this generation that came before us who prepared this place and this time and this space for us. But guess what? There's this generation that's coming after us. And they are young and experienced, just like we were at one point. And so the question is, who are we reaching back to prepare this space for? One of my former youth, and he's kind of followed us through ministry. And I remember as he was becoming a junior and a senior, and he was getting older in our youth program, and he was looking at these young 6th and 7th graders that were coming up, and they would just get on his nerves. And he would just be like, man, these young kids, they just, they just don't pay attention, and they're just not, they're just not listening, and, they, and they're just not doing what they need to be doing. And he's like, I just don't understand them. And I had to look at him, and I'd be like, listen, I need you to know a secret. Just a few years ago, this conversation that you and I are having, I had about you just a few years ago. That the 11th and 12th graders that were here when you were in 6th and 7th grade... They thought the same thing about you. In fact, they were wanting to kill you. And in fact, the reason that you're here is because I stopped some of them from doing it. All right? You have been the subject of many, many, many prayers, both for them and for you. Now, here's the challenge. Now you're in 11th and 12th grade. And do you remember that 11th and 12th grader who took you under their wing? 
And they kind of said, hey, listen, we're, this is not what we do. This is not how we behave. And you grew to where you are now. Guess what your job is? Those 6th and 7th graders that get on your nerves, go show them. Be the example to them. Look beyond yourself and see what's coming after you. And this is what David does in this first part of this. He looks beyond himself and he sees this next generation. And yes, he is young and he's inexperienced. So I'm going to do everything I can to make this simple and successful for him. And so for us, our job in this generation, regardless of what generation we think we are in or we think we want to belong to, our job is to prepare this next generation to set them up for success to, so that they have everything they need to follow after and pursue what God has called them to do. You see, but David isn't just looking but I'm himself physically in the next generation. He's looking beyond himself spiritually as well. I want you to see how he describes this task that's before the people of Israel and really before his son Solomon. Look back in verse 1 when he says, The task will be great because the temple is not for man but for the Lord God. You see this word great, it, it's a massive word, but it doesn't just refer to the magnitude of the project. It refers to the importance of the project. He's not just talking about it's going to be great because it's going to be this big temple that takes up massive amount of space and all this iron and all this silver and gold. It's not just the size of it. It's the importance of it that he's talking about. And this is the importance of this temple because this is God's space. This is the place of God's presence. This is the place that, that people will see and they'll be reminded of who God is. And they'll be reminded of all that God has done. This is the place that will attract them to God. This is the place that will draw their hearts in. This is the place that their hearts and souls will want to connect with and they'll long to be part of it, but this connection is missing because of the sin that we have. And, and so this will be the reminder that if you want to be in the presence of God, you've got to come through the sacrifices and, and this is how you're going to get there. And every time the people see the temple, they're going to be reminded that they are a sinful people. They're going to be reminded that even though they're sinful people, there's this sacrifice that they can make, and so they can come into the presence of God. Can I share with you a secret? This is my prayer for the task that's before us. That we become in this place, in this space that we have described, in this vision that we've described, it is a great task because of the importance of Him. The coffee and ice cream shop is not just for us. It is for Him. The softball field and the improvements to the entryway, Welcome Baptist Church, all of those tasks are great. And honestly, they are too great for us. But I'm praying that just like the temple, they are God's spaces. They will be attractive to the souls and to the hearts of the people. They will be this, this physical reminder that we are a sinful people, but God, through His providence and through His love for us, has made a sacrifice. He provided a sacrifice that we can connect back with Him. And so we've said it over and over again, and it's our constant prayer. In fact, we were sitting doing some interviews with some people who want to be on staff, and one of the people we were interviewing asked us, what are you most excited about? And so I looked at the person and I said, the, most thing, the thing I'm most excited about in all that we are trying to do as a church is what we've been praying over and over and over again. That the doors to a coffee shop are the doors to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it is attractive enough that people walk in there for coffee and they walk out with Jesus Christ. They walk with their eternity change forever. And so we understand the importance of this task. This is a God's task. It is not just for us. And so while we will enjoy coffee and ice cream, it is not for us. It is for Him and it is His space. It's a place where people can reconnect with a God who loves them and a Christ who died for them on the cross. It is a place where sins can be forgiven and reconciled to our Creator. And so the task is too great for us because it is God's task. And it's for Him and not for us. And so we look beyond ourselves. We had to be willing to be open and be available to what God is doing in those spaces, both now and in the generations to come. And so then David kind of shares how great this task is. And he, he calls the people together. And he gives them this opportunity to respond. He gives them this opportunity, uh, this chance to, to participate in what God is doing through this space. And so kind of like what we saw last week, there's almost this universal response of the people. We won't read through all of it again because, like I said, we kind of have dealt with the response last week. But in verse 2, David starts off and he says, So to the best of my ability, I have made provisions to the house of God. And then he goes on to list all the things that he provided, tons of this and tons of that. And at the end of verse 5, he invites other people to join in giving. He invites other people to join him 
in this great task. And at the end of verse 5, he asks this question. He says, now, who will volunteer to consecrate himself to the Lord today? And there's two important words I want us to focus on in that verse. In that verse. The first one is volunteer. Different translations say, who will offer willingly? Right? And we've talked about this before, that this is something you do because you choose to, and because God is moving you as an individual to do this. And so there's not coercion here. There's not uh, uh, this command to do this. There's no obligation here. David is the king, and he has the power to raise the taxes on the people. He has the power to charge them more money because he's the king. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. If this is going to happen, God's going to do it through His people. And so I'm just going to give the invitation. Here's the chance for you to participate. There's no requirement. There's no taxing. This is what it is. And if you want to participate, here it is. And this second important term that he uses is consecrate. And, and this is a, an interesting word that he chooses here because this is a word that is often used for kind of an ordination, right? That when you are uh, preparing a priest to go into the priesthood and start kind of setting him apart for the service that God had called him to, you would consecrate him. And so it's kind of the term that we would use for um, the laying on of hands for us who are in the, this, this church. And so we have consecrated deacons before. We've laid our hands on them. We've ordained them. We, we have seen consecrations of pastors. And, and we've laid our hands on them. We've prayed over them. And we've set them apart for the work of God. And so understand, this is a very sacred word for them. They don't use this for everything. This is, a, this is a very serious moment. This is the moment of worship. And so what I'm wanting you to see is what David's invitation is not just come and drop money in an offering plate. No, what he's saying is, I want you to willingly join in this moment of worship together. I want you to see the importance and the significance of this moment. That when you contribute to this, you are setting yourselves apart for the service of God. This is a humbling moment of worship. This is this moment, that this special and, and sacred way for you to participate in a very meaningful way that God is doing in and through His church, and you get to be part of it. And it doesn't matter how little you commit or how long you commit or how much you commit. The simple fact is that you are allowing God to lead you in God's direction, and you are following through with what God has called you to do. And if you've done that, then my hope is today that we can focus on these last sections of these verses because what we find is that when Israel gives, there's this praise that happens. And so I told you I shared, I've kind of saved these verses because I want you to understand the, the order that this is happening. David says there's this task that has to be done. And he says, I've given everything and, and I'm, I'm allowing you to participate. And then folks start bringing stuff. And then after the gifts are there, after all the accounting is done, and you can go back and you can read all that stuff you want to, how many tons of this, how many of this, and all that stuff, all the accounting is done, then the people rejoice. And there's this praise that happens. And what we find is there, there's this praise that comes because of the gifts of the people. John Piper, in talking about this passage, and John Piper's a great pastor, he says the problem with this passage is that we often stop too soon. And he says the problem with building a capital campaign on this passage and preaching this capital campaign on this passage is we often stop too soon. That we stop in verse 8. And if we stop in verse 8, what you see is this compelling, charismatic leader, David, standing up and giving this compelling speech to the people. And then you see these people responding. And, and man, there's just energy and there's excitement. And you see the people responding. And then you have this guy who's in charge of it. And you're like, man, he's got good management skills. And all you see in the first eight verses is the people. And he says, the problem is if you stop with the people, you really miss what's going on in this passage. And he says this, what's really going on and what really happens, and this is a quote from John Piper, what really happens was that God revealed himself the giving of the money for the house of God was the work of God to reveal God so that we would stand in awe of God. You see, and I think he's spot on because if we stop at verse 8, we don't see that. But if we continue on to verse 9 and the rest of the chapter, that's exactly what we find David and the people doing. They are standing in awe of God. They're standing in praise and ultimately the giver of everything. So I want you to look back with, verse, with me in verse 9. And after all that has been given, all the accounting's done, and, and all the stuff has been measured out, and this is how much is there. Verse 9, Then the people rejoiced 
because their leaders willingly to give, for they were giving to the Lord with a whole heart. King David also rejoiced greatly. You see, their giving responded, or their giving produced and prompted rejoicing, but it also prompted this praise. Look on verse 10 with me. Then David praised the Lord in the sight of the assembly, and David said, May you be praised, Lord God of our Father Israel, from eternity to eternity. So before we move on, before we get to see the praise of David, I want you to realize he's not praising the people. He, he's not congratulating them. He's not saying, hey, look at this challenge that we've done. He's saying, listen, what you need to understand is that what you've seen is God working. And the deserving praise goes to Him. All right? and, and so we're going to see this. This is what God says. And this is humble rejoicing and this humble praise of God. And it starts in verse 11. And we see David's worship in verse 11 in response to what's happened. And, and in verse 11, he starts kind of this string of this magnificent list of attributes of God. And my prayer is simply this, that as we continue through this campaign for the next couple of years, that we see these attributes over and over and over again. For some of us, we make commitments every month. And for some of us, we make commitments every week. And for some of us, we're just going to write one check and have it all said and done. But my prayer is simply this, that every time you give to this, you are reminded of these attributes of God. And he says the first one in, in verse 11. He says, Yours, Lord, is the greatness. See, this is the first attribute, that He is great. And He speaks of the magnitude. He speaks how large that God is. And, and this is the reason that the temple and the task is so big. Because it's for a very, very big God. And so that God is bigger than anything we can ever imagine. And so tonight, if the stars are clear, I want you to just go out and sit on your back porch or stand in your yard and just look at the vastness of the stars. And beyond those are more stars that you can't even see. And beyond those are stars that we can't even discover. And beyond those are stars that we don't have telescopes to even think about. And guess what we should be reminded of? Our God is bigger than all of that put together. And so we should be overwhelmed at the vastness and the greatness of our God because He is bigger than anything that we can ever imagine. He's bigger than our finite minds can even put into a box. And so He's bigger than anything that we can even think of. And so yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power. You see, He's not just big, but He's strong and He's powerful. One author put it this way. That he is stronger than an atomic bomb, like a hydrogen bomb. And every natural force, like an earthquake, or an ocean tide, or an exploding star, it's only small compared to the power that he has. He not only is great in size, but he can move and he can accomplish his will. He is powerful to do what he wants. So I want you to think about all the events that we have in this world. And I'm thinking the tragic earthquake that happened a couple weeks ago in Turkey that, that leveled entire cities. That doesn't compare to the power of God. It doesn't compare to the might that He has. And so we have this God who is vast and beyond our imagination, but we have this God who is powerful to do what He wants and can accomplish anything that He wills. And then David says, And yours is the glory. You are glorious. And he speaks of his beauty. In other words, this is his greatness and his power together is his beauty. This is what attracts us to him. You see, it's easy to be lost in the greatness of God. It's easier to be overwhelmed by the greatness of God. It's easy to be scared and terrified by the power of God to see what an earthquake does, to see the, the magnitude and the force behind a hurricane or even tides of the ocean and be like, wow, this God, I don't want to be anything to do with Him. He's so big and He's so powerful and yet He is glorious, which is His beauty. This is what attracts us to Him. This is what draws us into Him. He is glorious in everything and He is glorious in all that He has and all He does and our souls are made to respond to His glory and to be satisfied because we behold His glory. We exalt His infinite beauty. This is what attracts us to Him. It's what makes us want to be near this God who is so much bigger than us. It's what makes us want to be near this God that is so powerful we should stand and tremble at His power. And yet it's what draws us to Him. He is great and He is powerful and He is glorious and then He is victorious. And probably a better translation of that word that we have as splendor here is, is probably endurance or persistence. 
that He endures when everything else fails and falls away, that His glory and His power, they do not fade away, that He and He alone always has been and He always will be. What He was in eternity past, He is now and He will be for eternity future. And for us, that is so hard to wrap our mind around because everything we know on this earth has a beginning. Everything we know on this earth has an end except the God who created it all. And our finite minds can't even comprehend something that doesn't have a beginning. And I want to share with you the question that I get from kids all the time is when did God start? And the answer is never. And they're like, they just look at you kind of funny. Can I share with you? I'm 41 years old. And when somebody asks me, how did God start? Where did God come from? And I have to give the answer of nowhere. It baffles me. It should baffle all of us because we have this God that is different than anything else. We have this God that endures and is splendor and is victorious and He endures forever. And so what He was is what He is and is what He will always be forever. And we don't have to worry about tomorrow waking up and God is less powerful than He was today. We don't have to read about this God in the New Testament or in the future who can't move mountains and split oceans like He did in the Old Testament. Because what He was is what He is and what He always will be. And this God who spoke through a burning bush, this God who's divided oceans and let people walk through them, this God who who rained down fire and consumed a whole altar that had been flooded with water, that's the same God that you and I serve. That's the same God that you and I worship. His power has not faded and it will never fade. He is victorious and He is splendorous and He is so mighty and powerful. And finally, David says there's one other string that he wants to attach to this, that he is majestic. This is a royal word. It's a quality of royalty. This is the greeting of a king or a queen that that we refer to. And, And when you meet a queen or a king, you bow, and the title is your majesty. That's what you give to them. That's the title that you hold for them. And this is a sign of their lordship, their leadership. And, And so it changes how we approach them. One author says that when you approach your majesty, you don't slouch and you don't swagger. You don't joke and you don't jest. When you approach your majesty, you stand in awe and you tremble in joy in the fact that you are in the presence of the one who is majestic. And you're there without fear. You see, He is majestic both in possession and in power. And David says that everything in the heavens and the earth, in verse 11, they belong to the Lord. He is Lord over everything. He is the possessor and the owner of it all. You see, and this changes how we view all that we think we have because what this means is that in His majesty, in His majesty of possession, that He owns everything. He owns our homes. He owns our cards. He owns our television. He owns our mind. He owns our emotions. He owns our free time. He owns what everything we think we have. It's not ours. It's His. And yet He gives it to us. He puts it on loan for us. He allows us to be the trustees of it simply because He wants to. And He allows us, it's His, but He allows us to be the trustees over all that we see and all that we think is ours. It's really His. Why? Because He is majestic. He is the Lord over everything. And everything we have, we only have because it came from Him. And not only is He majestic in possession, but He's majestic in power as well. We skip on down to verse 12. And he says, you are the ruler of everything. Power and might are in your hand. And it's in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. And so he has everything and he rules everything. Everything that there is, is his. And everything that is his, is under him. And so he possesses it all and he controls it all. God is majestic in possession and power. And when we begin to understand, we see the string that God is great. And we see the string that God is powerful. When we see the string that God is victorious and enduring, when we see the string that God is majestic, there's only one question left for us to ask. And it's the question that David gets to in verse 14. It's this humble question. You see, when we see His goodness and His graciousness, when we see His his might and His power. And leads us to verse 14. But who am I? And who are my people? That we should be able to give as generously as this. For everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. In other words, God has enabled us to give what we do. 
He's enabled us to make these commitments. He's enabled us to, to give offerings. And He's enabled us to be here this morning in this place. And the question is, why? Why does God allow us to do this? Why does God allow us to be part of what He is doing? And we're reminded of that through His majesty and through His power and through all of His great things, we're constantly reminded that we are sinners and we don't deserve to be part of what, is, what He's doing. We don't deserve any of the blessings that He gives us. We don't deserve to be sitting here this morning. We don't be, deserve to have a listening of His Word. We don't deserve to sing His praises. We don't deserve to be part of anything that God is doing in and through this world. And yet He chooses us. He allows us to do it. And He allows us to be used by Him to be His instruments, to be the tools that He's going to use to build His kingdom here and to get His will achieved here on earth. And who are we that God would use us? We are so unworthy to be used by such a great and powerful and glorious and enduring and majestic God. And so we praise Him for the opportunity and for the opportunity to respond. And the reason that David praises Him is because David knows that he's not worthy. The reason that we come to this celebration of God's greatness is because we know that we're not worthy of it. See, God only uses us because He chooses to. God only allows us to be an instrument of His blessings and an instrument of what He is doing in this church and through this church because He chooses to. There is nothing within us that justifies God using us. Why in the world would the God of all creation, spotless, sinless, perfect creation, why would He use us except for His love for us? Why would He use us to spread His message, to build coffee shops and and ice cream shops, to put lights on a ball field? Why would He use us? It's because of His mercy for us. Because of His love that endured a cross for us. You see, but in the midst of all of this praise, David kind of brings this to an end. And he brings this to prayer for the future. And there's two things that David prays for in the future. In our time together, we're going to end with these two things. David says that in all this giving and all this praise and worship, there's two things that he asks God for. And the first one is he prays for the commitment of the people. In verse 18, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our ancestors, keep this desire forever in the thoughts of the hearts of your people and confirm their hearts toward you. Remember, this is a great task. This is not an easy thing. Remember, there's going to be hard times in the building of this temple. I want to look at you guys as a church and you guys that are online. There are going to be hard times for us as individuals and for us as a church. But keep this desire in front of us. Keep this desire in the hearts of your people. That even when there are hard times, even when there's times of doubt, even when we look at finances and we say we can't do this, even when we look at situations and we say we can't do what you've called us to do, confirm it in our hearts. And so it will take time, it will take dedication, but let us be faithful and let us keep this desire in our hearts. Let us always desire to be in His presence and to be used by Him. God, keep this desire in our hearts. You understand what David is praying for? I want to build this temple, and God, I want these people to desire to be in your presence because that's what the temple was for them. Can I share with you my heart for Cornerstone Baptist Church? God, keep this our desire that we enjoy this time of being in God's presence, but not just this, but keep it our desire that we continue to grow and we continue to spread your kingdom come and your will be done. Let the desire always be that our hands and our hearts are willing to be used by you and to see the work that you're doing and to take part in what you're doing. God, let us always desire to daily deny ourselves and take up our cross. Let us always desire to follow you regardless of what the circumstances is. God, we put this desire in our heart that if there's a one person that's not saved, it's our desire that we do anything we can to get to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, let us daily desire this. Let this desire forever be in the thoughts and the hearts of our people and confirm it in our hearts. And then in verse 19, he offers one more prayer. And this is specific for his son. In verse 19, he says, Give my son Solomon 
a whole heart to keep and to carry out all your commands, your decrees, and your statutes, and to build the temple which I have made provision. This idea of a whole heart is a, a perfect heart. It's a heart filled with peace. It's this heart that is complete and is satisfied. It's not divided. And it doesn't have just one piece missing. It is a heart that is whole and complete. And can I share something with you? If you want a prayer for the next generation, this could be it. If you want a prayer for your children tonight, this could be it. If you want a prayer for grandchildren or for the generation coming after you, God, give them a whole heart. A heart that's not divided. A heart that desires to be provided for. A heart that is desiring and a heart that is fulfilled in you and content in you. And so they're not looking for all these answers in this world. They're not looking for all the ways this world says to be satisfied. Why? Because they're fully satisfied in you. This is what David is saying. I want more than anything else for my son. I want him to have a whole heart. Why? So that he can carry out your commands and your decrees and your statutes. That he can build the temple. God, you have something special and you have a purpose for him. Otherwise, you wouldn't have put him on this earth. And so, God, I pray that his heart desires to follow after you so that he can fulfill what you have designed for him to do. You want a prayer for the next generation? You want a prayer for your children? This is it. God, give them a whole heart. So they keep and carry out your decrees and your statutes and your commands. And they build, they do what you have called them to do. And so I want you to understand that he started this passage with desire to provide for the success of this next generation. And then he ends his prayer with this prayer for their success. Let them be successful. And then I want you to notice what he does in the middle. I'm starting with this desire for them to be successful in what God's called them to do. I'm praying they are successful in what God calls them to do. And he fills the entire middle with how good and great God is. God, this is my desire. This is my prayer. And God, you fill in the in between those two things. And so we pray in our plans or that we follow in their heart is fulfilled and they are committed to the completion of what God has called them to do. Listen, I want you to hear our heart this morning. Our heart is the greatness of God. Our heart is to see God moving in and through Cornerstone Baptist Church. And our heart is that when we do this, when we see God moving in and through our church, we're reminded that He is great. We're reminded that He is powerful. We're reminded that He is majestic in all of His ways, in all that He has, and all that He owns. And we're reminded that our heart should always have this desire to be in His presence and to see others in His presence as well. And we're praying for a whole heart for the next generation. Let's pray together.